Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years' experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I 270 and MD 85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1 800 Gambler. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How are you today? I'm good. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andrew. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Today our guest is Christian Bush, the Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, producer, and multi-instrumentalist who has been making the impossible happen his whole life. Three times he's conjured his musical dreams into reality. One with his folk rock duo, Billy Pilgrim. Once with his country duo, Sugarland, who have sold over 22 million albums worldwide, and most recently as a solo artist. Please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Christian Bush. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good, man. Thanks for joining us. Doing great, Christian. I have so many questions for you guys. Well, hang on. <laughs> I know it's your podcast, but you know. I love it when a guest vets the, the host. That's right. Yeah. He's already on it. Well, you know. Well, man, I got to tell you, I did a deep dive into your uh, your Troubadour record. Oh, time. the rabbit holes are deep in my world. You have to be careful. <laughs> okay. Well, what I love about it the most is that it sounds like it could have been written and recorded by the finest of country artists in the 50s. It's so true to the Appalachian spirit and the spirit of classic country music. It's, I haven't heard anything that's that authentic in a while. It was mesmerizing, to be honest with you. I'd listened to the whole record all the way through, straight through. <laughs> what was interesting about it also was I know it was kind of the songs for the musical that you did at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta in 2017, right? The musical Troubadour. That's correct. And I did a musical at that same theater the Stephen King, Mellencamp, T-Bone Burnett, Ghost Brothers of Darkland County in 2012. Yes, you did. But uh, getting back to your record, man, I'm going to just start the top. Father to the Son, great traditional country song. Like I said, these songs could have been, you know, Hank Williams, you could have sat and wrote that with him. Beautiful song. I, I love you for all of this. You just keep talking. <laughs> I'm going to. It, it's hard to shut me up once I get going. Uh, but Magnolia Wind, it's a classic country song about resilience and perseverance. I love it. It's a great song. 
White White Steeple could have been on Sweetheart of the Rodeo by the birds. Ooh. It's just killer. Love it. Plain and simple. What do you want for Christmas, man? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know when we're done. Okay. <laughs> so plain and simple. It's, it's a kind of a George and Tammy kind of a duet, man. I love it. Great song. And then Hunt Dog Hunt. Now, if that song doesn't make you smile, your lips are glued together. It's a great song. It's great. Yeah. Killer song. Love it. It's so infectious. Now, the next song, Ice Cream and Lollipop, well, you just need to hear it. And I think you'll think differently about making homemade ice cream after that one. But. Oh, jeez. You are nasty. You're a nasty man. <laughs> but no, it's, 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 it's hilarious, actually. I love it. It's, uh, it got me in the funny bone, literally. But, you know, um, Who Will Serve, that's my favorite song on this record. The lyrics are great. Ah, uh, cool. Johnny, here's your shot. Come on now. You guys need to listen to this. Are you a Blackberry Smoke fan? Oh yeah, I saw Charlie yeah. Stars on there as soon as I yeah, saw so it. Yeah, so Charlie like, sang that song for me on the yeah. on the record, and I was I was beside myself. He 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 asked to, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Wow. <laughs> yeah. I was like, "This is somebody's pinch me, would you?" Yeah. <laughs> well, what a great tune, man. Oh wow, that sucked you. me in, man. It's just good good lyric writing. Troubadours, another great one. I love the baritone guitar and the the real simple dobro stuff. It's like nobody was going heedly, 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 boo, 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 trying to show off. They just played the right little parts to make the tunes work. I love that kind of musicianship, man. It just comes from doing it so long that, you know, I'm not going to try. I don't need to do that. This is what the song needs. That arrangement showed real restraint. I mean, I, yeah. I love it. Even this, I don't know if it was keys or strings, but there was a lovely little pad that just appears and then disappears in the middle of the song. That's gorgeous. Um, my brother is just a genius, and uh, he's a he's the keyboard player for all the stuff and okay. music with me. But uh, I think that's probably like maybe a Mellotron. Uh, no, you know what that is? That's actually a pump organ. Oh, cool! And you can hear it, and you can hear there was a there was a hole in in the bellows. You can hear the. <laughs> <laughs> and so at the end of it it kind of goes sour it's like like it goes off key but uh yeah that's what that was i forgot kind of like a field organ yeah it's like field organ but it's a, a pump organ has the way it, it's timed or the way that it um, stops work yeah all it's really doing is putting in different flute sounds right yeah they're all wooden in there all those reeds are wooden and uh i don't know it just i, I like it because it's just barely holding together and it it has sounds that you know, like really interesting singers have gruff voices. You you hear like six notes in their one note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, overtones. Yeah, yeah. But that's just it, that's that's an instrument that does the same thing. Oh, sure. I recorded with uh, a pump organ on one project, and it was lovely. Yeah, it's great. And it can be an intimate instrument, and it can also be a, a massive instrument, depending on how you produce it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it works great in that tune. It sure does. Yeah. And all because of you, the ladies will love that one. Uh, I predict <laughs> cover versions immediately of that song. That's really a well-written song. Really good. Thank you. Bye Bye Train. Now, here's another one that I thought it could have been uh, on that first Flying Burrito Brothers record. Gilded Palace of Sin. Oh Fit right in with that kind of stuff, man. Really great. Chris Hillman would love that. You know, he would love it. Dear Lord. And American Original is the first time you kind of hit some rock and roll on this record. But it sounds like a Sun Records kind of rock and roll. You know, like something, uh, you know, like an early Elvis cut or something. Chuck Berry meets meets Elvis. That was the idea. I was trying, the character who who was writing that one in the musical, he was writing it based on the fact that he could pick up Memphis radio stations in Nashville just occasionally. Uh. And 
it had to be not his dad's country music. Gotcha. That was the ask of the director, like, or in the playwright. Like, can it be, you know how everybody's music is just somewhat a, rejected by their own parents <laughs> yeah you know like you're you're at some point your your dad or your mom was like oh dude i can't believe that rap is not real music or that country music is not my country music yep. that's not and it just generally generationally just keeps flipping it sure does because uh, it's happened with my kids and my parents i remember watching ed sullivan and seeing paint it black the rolling stones doing it when i was six and they said <laughs> those boys are ugly I, yeah. those beatles are nice kids but and i went out and bought that 45 yeah. the next day yeah immediately I had to have it. oh i love that <laughs> that's right but uh, in the last tune, God made rhinestones so we could shine. How great is that? Well, I mean, that was a curtain call. And, I, you know, I don't know the first thing about musicals, but uh, this was my first one I'd ever written. And the music asks of the director were very specific, obviously, because you can you're getting all of that information without knowing anything. Right. Like, I'm hearing you talk about the music in a way, the way it made you feel, what it reminded you of and how, yeah. what references you're thinking of. and. That was the entire intention, and you don't even have to know the story. <laughs> well, that's what I was getting around to. It's like, man, I would love to see the the musical now. You know, I mean, <laughs> wow, because I, I like the songs just by themselves. You know, I'd love yeah, them. I mean, I, I'm the first guy that's like, I, I, I don't like musicals, and I don't know why I don't like them, but I'm just about to start rehearsals on my third one. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, and I really freaking hate them. But you like to write them. Well, I think it's one of the reasons why I, I'm attracted to it is because there's got to be a way that you can use this medium to tell a story without having to live in the convention of what I already know as musicals. Hmm. Like, sure. I've heard records that tell great stories. Right. Uh -huh. And can't we just do that? Well, I, I tried to do that last year, which I think I succeeded with my pandemic record, which I conceived as a musical, Songs from Isolation, all about people going struggling through the pandemic in different situations. Yeah. But again, I mean, I've always liked the idea of musicals. Hair was pretty cool back in the day. and uh, like, Yeah, that was one of the rock ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and some of the Kinks 70s things were ha had the right idea. But man, you did a, what a great job. Thank you. Very cool. Tommy was pretty cool, too. Tommy was cool as crap. Well, that man. was a rock opera, Hugh, not a musical. Yes. I'm not sure I know all the, do you guys know what the difference is? Because they just explained to me that a play with music is different than a musical. So a musical, give or take, is around 16 songs minimum. Yeah. Right. I had a second one go up at the at the Alliance here in Atlanta this past year, and it was called Darlin' Corey, and it had 24 or something Whoa. songs. I mean, it was crazy no dialogue oh no plenty of, i mean the book writers on these things are pros yeah you know they are really good especially the book writer on troubadour she is unreal her name's Janice schaefer and um the one that opens in miami soon that i'm working on is with her very cool yeah i thought les mis the film was pretty compelling i thought that was a beautifully done piece <laughs> yeah but i mean i get so like anxious every time they sing in that thing i'm like are you screaming at me? Is something bad happening? I don't understand. You're like, but I'm also a kid that likes Clash records. So you're going to have to work really hard to get me to like, it's the yeah, genre love but, a musical. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also a, there's a cadence to the musical that is so easily anticipated the, the way 
you just know based on the dialogue and the spaces between dialogue that the strings are about to come in and this person's going to go from the spoken word to singing. That anticipation I find kind of saccharine and, yeah. and hard to tolerate. I try to explain to people the thing that bothers me the most is that like, if you're going to sing, I expect there to be a stage and like a guitar and a microphone and people mm. that are in the audience. Like that's the reason you sing. Yeah. I, not making breakfast. Yeah. Right. You know, like I don't want to sing about my pancakes unless, mm -hmm. I mean, that would be pretty freaking good pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Give me start singing, but it, like the convention of it never made sense to me. So uh, I'm, I'm a student in all of this. So don't get me confused with somebody who's succeeding at it. Well, you succeeded with the songs on this one, man. <laughs> well, the song stuff I'm, I, I've been doing for a long time. I can do the songs, <laughs> but it's just, understand you know like i don't i don't write musicals i write music for people ask me to right. <laughs> hmm. yeah well i think some of the rock operas over the years have actually kind of they've kind of been watered down into being more like a traditional musical like jesus christ superstar is amazing the, the, the record's soundtrack amazing. with ian gillen it's right. a rock it's, it's a rock show and a rock record I was there for one of the um, opening, uh, when they revived it. Andrew Lloyd Webber was there in New York City. This has been mm. 20 years ago. And it was all right. I had a friend in it, so that's why I enjoyed it, you know? But other than yeah. that, I was like, man, it's missing that rock punch. If you want to go back and hear a great one that most people don't know, go back and listen to Arthur, The mm. Decline and Fall of the British oh, yeah. Empire by the Kinks. Mm. That's one of the great, I mean, it actually was written, it came out after Tommy, but it was written before Tommy during that same period of time. It's a mm -hmm. fantastic record. And Tommy was fantastic. I, I had it when I was nine, right? Right mm -hmm. after it came out. But again, you know, they kind of, it, it got weird when it went to be a film. It was a lot cooler when it was a rock band singing and not Anne Margaret singing right. a couple of those <laughs> songs. It's like, really? <laughs> or who was the male actor in that? Oh, it was like, come on, man. Um, did they ever film Troubadour? No, I mean, you know, the rules are, are, are interesting. I'm Dane, I'm sure you remember, but uh, the rules are interesting. You can't really make a cast record. Right. And you can't really, there's all sorts of like uh, hoops you got to jump through to protect your actors and the actors unions. And, but what's great about it is, you know, I, I, and I've had to learn this because I'm, I'm a student of the music business at a high level and have been for years um, in order to just survive in it. Mm -hmm. You have to sure. acquire knowledge. And so I use the same muscle to start looking at the, the business of musicals. And it's, it is unique. You know, they are designed to be stories that multiple people with multiple vocations um, constantly are chipping away at in order to make it more and more durable. Hmm. Is the best word that I use for it. It's like, you know, like a Rubbermaid yep. that you, you store your stuff in and it's just durable. It's not going to, even when it's scratched, it's going to still hold its shape, you know? And that's what these stories and these songs at their best, you're hoping to become mm -hmm. so that uh, 20, 30 years from now, whether it's a high school in Des Moines or it's a huge production in Sydney or wherever they put it on, it's going to translate the same emotion during the same section every single time. And you don't have to be a virtuoso to sing it. And you don't have to be an incredible actor to act it. And, and it tells you everything you need to know about a story that's important, right? Uh, the Durable music is hard 
to make. It's harder than I had ever anticipated. <laughs> it's one thing to write for, let's say, a singer that I, I work with all the time in Sugarland, or it's it's almost somewhat uh, the high probability of success to sit and write with some of the artists that I write with because I can hear their voice in the room and I can say, oh, I'm going to stay away from that note. Mm. And, ooh, that note's awesome. So I'm going to make, I'm going to set that up like it's, Mm. When that hits, I, I know what a microphone's going to do to some of this. Sure, how yeah. about you? Sing, how about you sing less? Mm. Like you give a great singer a small melody, and suddenly they they're off to the races. Yeah. Right. Uh, but when you're writing for someone you don't know, you'll never meet. You're, you're never going to be able to help through it. You've got to shrink these songs and these thoughts down to these tiny places. Mm. That if Dane wants to go put on Tr uh, Troubadour, it's going to sound awesome. And I, I got to know that ahead of time. Right. So you, sure. you work on this from, you start in a regional theater like the Alliance, and then you'll move up to another regional theater in another part of the country who has a director that thinks this and a, a set person that thinks this, and they, they recast it again and it goes through. Like, um, there's this beautiful musical name called Come From Away. And it's a story, it's a Canadian story about rerouting the, the, the planes on 9-11. On and they all land in Nova Scotia, right? And they deplane and they try to take care of them all and explain what's happening while everything's shut down. And then they replane and then they leave. But that thing went through like five theaters before it got to Broadway. Mm. And each theater in the business side gets a little piece of money back through every ticket. Okay. Mm. For X number of years into the future. Oh, then, interesting. So what you do is you, you, as your musical moves closer and closer to say off Broadway or Broadway or the West end or something, you're really creating a, a coalition of theaters and, and creators that are all trying to make it better. Mm. You know, has your work been in the West end of London? God, no, not yet, but you know, fingers crossed. Yeah. The, the, the most recent one, Darling Corey, was a lot more traditional in its structure than Troubadour. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I put three or four of the songs out of it because I wanted to put the music out a little ahead of the 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 you know the the debut of it. Experimenting with the old '60s idea that a a, a song could drive a musical. Mm. They used to. That's how they used to advertise them, <laughs> which I didn't know. They'd release a single you know, on the radio from Oklahoma or something, you know? <laughs> oh, sure. The Brits called videos commercials for years. They didn't call them videos. And oh, cool. that's a nice slice of honesty, you know, as opposed yeah. to, yeah, here it is. But no, I would love for it to go to West End, but I, you know, I think these things are a very long tail, but they are very, a long boil. You gotta write something with Judy Dench in mind or, or Maggie Smith or, <laughs> or Kenneth Branagh. That, that, that yeah, is one of these guys. Yeah. Well, and the, just got to remember the ghost brothers thing started about, I'm going to say at least 20 years ago. Mm. And it's still, yeah. it's still, it was supposed to go to the West end a few years ago and it keep, it's changed. And we took it out on a tour a couple of oh, times. Yeah. And uh, so you just never know. They talk about it all the time down there because the same director directed both of these, Susan Booth. Oh, Susan did. Oh, yeah, she cool. directed Trudor and Garland Corey. But great lady. You know, it's a very interesting game. It's it's different than all my other life. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Speaking of your other life, uh, I'd like to 
uh, go into Billy Billy Pilgrim a little bit. So uh-huh. when I was in college, college radio at the time, I remember coming across Billy Pilgrim and thinking at the time it was a dude named Billy Pilgrim. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was well, surprised to find five. out. It yeah. I know, but I just didn't. I didn't even know, you know. And um, but those, okay. those records at the time were really, you know, just they're they're still resonate to this day. I was listening to stuff this morning again and just reminded of how great those tunes are. But you guys have been busy in the last couple of years. I mean, you've had you know a couple decades of of not being busy, and then you guys. Yeah. Kinda, so what what brought it back? Um, you know, what brought it back together? You know, Andrew, my Andrew Hyra, my singing partner in Billy Pilgrim, he came, he walked on stage in the middle of like a songwriters thing at 30A Festival in, in Florida while I was playing. And I watched him walk to the stage and I literally had not seen him in 20 years. And he walked up on stage and we started singing the song I was singing in the writer's round. Oh, wow. So you didn't know he, he was there. Up. Wow. I, I knew he was on, I knew he, I had reached out to another guy in his band who was one of our producers, Don McAllister. And, or maybe Don had reached out to us and said, Hey, I saw we're all on the same thing together, but I'm not sure we're on the same day. So we may or may not see each other. Mm-hmm. And Andrew made a point to make it to my show. And then he just walked up on stage in the middle of me playing a song. And we just sang together before we even talked. <laughs> and great. it was just one of those cool moments where, and you guys all know you play music with somebody and you're kind of brothers in a weird way. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, you can't undo that. And, um, that communication is so, I mean, you play that many shows with somebody even 20 years before and they show up and you're like, boom. And then of course the room doesn't know what to do with something like that. Sure. Right. You know, when you've played 150 shows a year for eight years <laughs> and that kind of memory comes back. It becomes entertainment in a way you're, you're kind of shocked. And uh, so from that point, we, we stayed in touch off and on for two or three years. Uh, I, I'd just been uh, in the reboot of uh, Sugarland. Jennifer, my singing partner there had taken a break to have a baby and try out a solo career, see how that was going to go. And um, all of it kind of, compiled into um once lockdown went in for all this craziness you know all of us looked at our lives in different ways sure and andrew and i reconnected and i said you know i was like you know man it's so impossible to find any of our music online because because we were a band in 94 95 96 right and we were on atlantic records which is a warner imprint and as they transitioned things in, they were kind of offloading bands that weren't on the label anymore to Rhino and some of these other kind of, I don't know, like archival labels, Mm. which did the very minimum possible to get stuff online. (laughs) Like things were still misspelled. They didn't know where to send money. Like, (laughs) I hadn't really checked on it because Sherland just like went bonkers, you know? And, Sherland was already dealing with the transition from we were one of the last bands to go from I mean like we were the first band on Mercury Nashville to sell anything on iTunes mm. Wow! Mm. all the way to the point where now you know sure. like there's just they're not even gonna even shut that down soon I'm sure right. yeah. <laughs> you know it's it's a very odd career to have had 30 years of this and still be you know 
somewhat active and relevant. So Andrew and I just decided to reissue all of our old music. We found a record that we had made the same we had we had made and intended to release it the same year I started Sugarland. <laughs> and it's when we stopped working together. He went to California and we just didn't do anything with it. So we I released it finally 20 years later. Ironically, it's titled Billy Pilgrim in the Time Machine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. I gotta yeah, check that one out. Yeah. So what year was that that you got you cut that record? We cut it in two thousand and one. Okay. okay, that's the blue cover with the kind of. That's the blue cover, cover with the yeah, with the like clock. Yeah, insides on it. Yeah, I so Hugh, I have so many questions for you. You have no idea. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about let's talk about record covers. I just got to tell you, I love your level of kind of uh, I won't say punning because that sort of de degrades. Uh, people sometimes say, oh, cool pun with moving pictures and stuff like that. Well, I like to think it's a, a bit more elegant than a pun. But it, at, at the base of it all, it's a pun. It's a, you know, even with your um, twice, uh, what's the name of that album? Um, twice the Speed of Life, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's beautifully referring, I'm sure, to the duality of the creatures on the arc, yeah? You know, and and the fact that, um, and I like your textures, too. I'm, I'm looking at pieces today, just, you know, the crown and, and treaty you know i just love the look of that cover there's a beautiful sense of design to that bloom is kind of just nice and graphic it, do, it doesn't tell me the story but i i don't need the story to, to like the cover oh i love this i love this <laughs> so uh, as a student of like this is what i wanted to do my whole life right i'm the kid who like took the, the cardboard middle out of the the wire hangers that you put your clothes on. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and set my pillows up and tried to be a drummer. You know, like oh, very uh, cool. I was that kid. And weirdly, my brother and I were both classically trained. So rock and roll was kinda What was your instrument? I was in the very first um uh group of kids that were experimented on <laughs> under the suzuki method when it first came to america really i thought did that and there's also um, interesting there's also the orf method in canada which yeah i heard about that yeah. my aunt had one of the biggest chapters of the orf method for children wow yeah bringing you through to music through rhythm and through through rhythm yeah, yeah. i remember that so and because we were early on in the experiment it was very and you gotta remember i grew up in east tennessee so this was like my mother was driving us uh, from the mountains into you know not the big town of knoxville and as they as she did you know the she was a progressive educator so she was really willing to throw us into almost anything and <laughs> this was if children learn music between the age of three and five and it's taught like a language like an immersion language Hmm. And you are, in fact, immersed in it. Yeah. Will, will they learn music as a language? That was the question that Shiniki Suzuki was trying to ask. And <laughs> at the t I mean, when I tell you this in retrospect, it sounds kind of nutty. But at the time, no one seemed to blink an eye, which was, you shall listen to these five songs yeah. without fail over and over again on endless tape loops. Really? And you'll listen to it in the car. They even had uh, little plastic speakers under my pillow uh -huh. at night, and it would just run all the time. And that would happen for years on end Whoa. until your body could physically make those noises. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you, it was wow. really cool when you were like, 
oh, that's how you make that noise? Yeah, yeah. And you just like vomit Vivaldi. Yeah. And I'm sure everyone was like, that's the coolest party trick I've ever seen in my life. And it kind of is. I mean, the internet's kind of obsessed with things like that now. You see the little kid that plays like the incredible ukulele and yeah, sure, all that stuff. But that's all it is, is you, you're just doing what you've heard. Yeah, but there's a certain level of prodigy to some of those kids. Well, yeah. I was just an institutionalized version of that. <laughs> well, you know, there's a whole notion that if you play Mozart and Vivaldi and beautiful music to the the child in the womb, there's something to be said for that, too. That's all pretty obtuse and, you know, unverifiable. But I have to believe there's some kind of synchronicity between what you're talking about and even that prenatal experience. Yeah, I'm sure my prenatal was full of like weird bluegrass. <laughs> Which is why you got me, hey, you know, like <laughs> turned out okay. I, turned out good, man. Did you ever migrate to piano or? No, my brother did, which is why he's so good at it. Yeah. And you know, he he's but we're both very well, our ears are pretty well trained. Yeah. We can play anything if you give us like 10 minutes on it. I can I can as long as I don't blow into it, I'm pretty good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But uh, what my point was, as a student of all this, I knew what I wanted to be rather young. And I started to, you know, I get, I go to the record stores and just read everything. Mm -hmm. I'd read all the albums, I'd see all the covers, I'd do all this stuff. And so by the time I was starting to get my shot at some of this, I was self-making records starting at like 13. Mm. And then my age put me right at the moment where we could buy four tracks and commercially released four tracks at the music store and create on them and then sell them to our friends. And, you know, it was like the rise of early, early, early Thrasher magazine, early, early, early eighties, you know, underground thrash Mm -hmm. and punk music, or it's not even punk. It's like, I don't know, hardcore maybe was what was starting. Then it was sort of a pushback to the metal. Mm. And then I was obsessed with, anything that sounded like it didn't come from the mountains <laughs> mm. okay like i was obsessed with adam the ants and i was obsessed uh, with okay you know oingo, oingo boingo you, know, you can tell how i got programmed by accident yeah and so by the time i was in college i would constantly be sending things to record labels asking for a record deal hmm. yeah. maybe four or five years in a row i had two or three projects a year i was begging and by the time I got out of college, I landed one and uh, on Atlantic Records out of New York with Billy Pilgrim. Okay. And uh, what A&R person made that happen? Oh, uh, an A&R. It was actually very interesting. It was one of these good fortunes where I was, I was completely obsessed with staying in touch with whoever would respond positively to me. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. And there was a lady named Jennifer Stark who worked at the agency for performing arts. And I was trying to get a gig in, in Manhattan that was better than the bitter end gig where you had to go and like, yeah, you had to validate that you had come for this act and you had to do it this way. You know, it was just impossible. Yeah. And, uh, she was trying to help me out and over a two or three week, like incommunicado break where I didn't stay in touch with her. She called me back and said, you're not gonna believe this. I work now at Atlantic records. I'm, uh, and a and nice. and she said wow. she said uh and and if you're interested i'd like to go and start the process of signing you but i want to give you a little warning and i was like what and she goes well you know i'm the first woman here in a and r and um at that time ahmed was the president mm-hmm. 
And um, what year was that? That would have been 1993. Hmm. Okay. Okay. It was 92 into 93 because I graduated college in 92 and got the record deal actually in 90, late 92. She said, look, I, I, I want to be real clear with you. I'm trying to sign this band. And if they don't say yes, then it's up. Then it's you guys. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I've never like... <laughs> ever wished ill on another musician <laughs> until then <laughs> right and but here's the joy about it is when she told me what band it was it was a band i freaking loved yeah and i was like oh you definitely want to sign them <laughs> yeah and they didn't end up they ended up signing desire it was a band called uncle tupelo uh-huh yeah. oh yeah they were great they ended man. up they did splitting okay. up later you know yeah and becoming wilco, wilco and Sunville. yeah, yeah. but she 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 couldn't get that one to land wow. so she signed us okay and, and starting at that point that was when i started to understand hugh what a job like yours and a vocation like yours really was mm-hmm. because i knew the mechanics of what you had to do to make a record what you had to do to make the covers what you had to, and why you would make different choices mm. but i'd never been around people that were professional at it and not only that intentional so i was like a sponge i would go sit in that office in new york i i would fly up you could get a really cheap flight from atlanta and i'd go up there on monday and i'd stay till wednesday or thursday and then come back and i would do nothing but hang out in the hallways uh yeah well even even in doing what i started to do i wasn't really aware quite it wasn't intentional it was um nor was it entirely happenstance i i did enjoy the work of other uh, album graphist, you know, going back to the '60s, and then of course when Storm came in with Hypnosis, I thought that's how I want to live. That's that's where I want to. Um, and I like I like the whimsy and the improbability of what they would produce for the title. I, I love that there didn't need to be a connection between what was visually on the cover. Well, then your brain starts to imprint on it, right? Yeah, because. You know, like uh, we talk about this all the time in my world. Like when you hear something, you're like, man, what does that look like? Or mm. when you see something like, what does that sound like? Yeah. Interesting. You know? And, and we play around with that all the time, especially I have a new rock band that I'd started a couple years ago called dark water. And uh, it's nice. Name. It's, it is absolutely loosely based on the origination of it was loosely based on late 69, early seventies, grateful dead. Nice. Okay. Oh, cool. Nice. And it was a challenge. It was, hey, Christian, uh, this is from my brother. You know, uh, that I, I keep getting calls from television shows asking for sound alike songs. Mm. Like, we sound alike for this because they don't have the money to afford a real thing, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much film and TV here in Atlanta, which is where I live, that they call it Yollywood, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> nice. All of that music request is also coming through here too. And he said, you know, someone was asking for a Grateful Dead sound like we don't have anything like that. And, you know, would you be, we were in the middle of Shirley tour. He's like, would you be interested in trying to write some of that on your off day? And I was like, oh, sure. No problem. He's like, but here's the rule. Like, I'll send you the music. All I need is the lyric and the melodies. I was like, what? Hmm. You know, he's like, well, if you do, it's going to sound like sugarland or something like i don't need it sound like that so he and one of our dear friends benji shanks who's this is a guitar player dane that you really liked the restraint of um 
they were like, oh, we'll just send you some tracks, some like parts of a song and you just sort it out. And as I did, I realized that that I did the little homework because I just had to do the homework for Troubadour about what would songs sound like in 1951. Uh And you realize quickly that when you forensically write songs, you have to put yourself in the spot of the artist. And if you put yourself in the spot of the artist at that time, you got to know a lot of things. Mm-hmm. What sure. was their head? What was, what were they secretly buying at the record store that they didn't tell anybody, you know, what was their cool obsession that they wouldn't tell anybody else? What was also their problem or their emotional problems at the time? And I kind of dove in and found out that grateful dead record, American beauty was like a panic. Mm-hmm. record and i didn't know anything i didn't i mean i knew that record but i didn't know it mm-hmm. and and i knew the band i'd seen the band seven or eight times as a teenager smoking dope and that record's different that one in uh, working man's dead yeah. it didn't really sound like that live you mm-hmm. know when they made those records yeah. i didn't think that's a whole different it's almost like they were trying to be crosby stills and nash a little bit yeah well and, and it was what people were listening to and part of what happened when i found out and this could be total crap because the internet could be lying to me. But the second record was a panic from the first record. Like uh, Working Man's Dead happened. Yeah, you're right. And they had a hit. And legend has it, somebody that they had hired was their business manager or something, just took all their money. Mickey Hart's father. Is that what it was? Yeah. Okay, so I don't really know the story. But, oh, he did. But I, mm. and, and for them to get more money, they had to immediately turn back around and make a record real quick. I think it's true, yeah. I knew exactly how to do that. Hmm. Like, I know what choices I made in Billy Pilgrim when I had to make a second record because the first one was a hit. I know the same problem with Sugarland. The first record went bonkers, and they were like, you need to make a record right this second, and one of your members is leaving. And I was like, what? Hmm. Chicken with my head cut off, right? Yeah. And... Uh, so I knew what you edit in that moment. So I, Brandon was like, what five songs were left on the floor for the American beauty record? Hmm. Like, what did they not cut because they were just flying through it? Hmm. Right. What didn't make the record? Right. And I was like, Ooh, I can do that. Let's play that game. Yeah. So we played that right. game. And I, played it from, I played it for my manager while we were in the middle of the Shirland tour. I think we might've been, we were in New Jersey or Philly or somewhere. <laughs> Big old sold out show. I played it for him and he looked at me and he's like, okay, man. When you get home, don't do anything else but this. I need you to f- I need you to make a whole record out of this. I need you to name the band and you need to start working now. I was like, you're shitting me. He's like, no, man. I was like, I need another band. Like I need a hole in the head. He's like, <laughs> yeah, but you're. this is a sin if you don't do this. So you're, you know, you know, and occasionally you got to trust people around you like that so i started this band and we just completed our second record two weeks ago oh cool and we still don't have my album cover you there you go duly noted (laughs) we do have a name for it though and it's this one's loosely based on uh learning from the talking heads okay Hmm. so it combines what we started and now we've kind of absorbed the the kind of strange groove situation of the talking heads which was mm. your drummer's not great but your bass player's a badass yeah yeah and right. and everything is kind of this hypnotic groove with a you know like play playful melodies on them nice now very cool what was the title did you say you- i haven't told you but now i'm about to okay 
Okay, if it comes to your head, now you feel free to send me whatever you want. This is exactly the right time because we got to figure this out in the next three weeks. All right. One step ahead of the robot. <laughs> okay. I love <laughs> it. I love it. Um, <laughs> I used to say when people ask me over pandemic, they're like, man, how you doing? I was like, staying one step ahead of the zombies, man. One step ahead of the zombies. Yeah. <laughs> we're in Atlanta and they film, you know, all the zombie TV shows are here. Oh, that's right. Walking so, Dead and you all know, that. like all the Walking Dead and yeah. all the people who work on all that's here. So, you know, your kid's Halloween makeup is always nuts. <laughs> so I have a story. So Christian, yeah. we've actually met before and I don't expect you to remember it. So oh. um, I was working or I've done a lot of work over the years with Louis Messina's office on the oh, yeah. Kenny Chesney shows. And you yes. guys were opening for Kenny in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Backstage in this kind of big I don't even know what it is, uh, area down there at the stadium. That would have been in the arena, right? No, it was at the stadium. The, it there was, was two oh, stadiums, no, no. the newer one, the newer stadium. It was the newer stadium. I actually remember the show. I don't do all the drugs much anymore. Right. So. <laughs> well, and I remember it well because there were some people back there that were uh, from Jim Beam, and they had brought some product up to give to Kenny or whatever. And you were standing there and said something of the effect of, and you probably know where I'm going with this. You said something like, oh, I can't give you any free, you know, booze, but maybe I could get, hook you up with some free beans. And, and you, <laughs> you kind of made a joke about it and walked away. And, and then it occurred to me, I'm like, wait a second, is he part of the Bush's baked beans family? And I asked around and they said, yeah, I think he is. So you got to tell us what, what's yeah. that? Wow, man. Right. Yeah, my 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 granddad and and uh, my granddad was president for a long for as long as I ever could ever remember, and uh, wow. and my dad worked there and they sold it when I was twelve, eleven, eleven or twelve, so nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty two. Okay, they sold it in some sort of mysterious. I was too young to really figure it out. Which, by the way, the investigative podcast to go figure out that story is going to be fun. <laughs> um, but. Uh, they sold it in some sort of highly pressured one side of the family buys it from the other or something. I don't remember, mm. but um, it was very dramatic rift in my, mm. my family history at that moment. And uh, so it, it was, it was somewhat not talked about okay. after that. Cause I think it was a hot topic. Sure. Maybe there was a lot of shame mm. on it with my grandparents or my dad or something. And then he, kind of tried to never work again because maybe they got paid a lot of money when it sold. Yeah. Then suddenly all that stuff went away because 80s and 90s. And so uh, my father, my brother and I lost our father a couple years ago and there was literally nothing left. Like oh. we inherited nothing. So I can't tell you, mm. you know, what <laughs> that really is. But um, yeah. uh, my brother and I very recently I started asking questions of each other like oh remember that summer we went and moved from this place to this place and he's like yeah yeah, yeah. i was like why that's the year that we sold the company right he's like oh i guess it was i thought it was just the year they sent us off to camps i was like we both went away to boarding schools they shipped us away to like never never land yeah yeah <laughs> we oh, never wow. came home again mm. Didn't mean to open up a can of beans. <laughs> I do prefer the onion. That that is my go-to beans. I got to say, they're great. I, I you know, I, we ate all that stuff growing up, and I I I knew everybody in that factory. My granddaddy would carry me around. I mean, I was the oldest, so I was supposed to inherit it. And there were very few people on our side of the family. My granddaddy was an only child. Hmm. Um, do you have any concept of where you 
estimate or, or imagine those funds evaporated to? I, I don't, uh, you know, people are always interested. I mean, we're from the mountains, so very, it's very odd the way people's relationship with the money is. So no Bentleys mm-hmm. in the driveway or, yeah. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. No, it's because you got to remember, like, the haves and the have-nots are very different when you're in Appalachia. I imagine. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the haves are the people that have a car, not the people that have the biggest car. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And the have-nots uh, work for the haves is usually yeah. kind of how that works. Got but it. you go two towns over, you go to a big city, and suddenly Bush Brothers didn't mean anything up next to Whittle Communications or, you know, like these 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 large things that really, if you look at them, mean nothing if you go south to Atlanta. Yeah. You, you brush up against a Turner. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the it, it, so I, everything's relative. Right. And I think what I learned was how to uh, care for good fortune. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And because I didn't have it. Yeah. And people thought I did. So I had to like, so I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to fake anything. No. Because, you know, it's like, oh, no, I, you know, we don't own that. That's not my thing. I, I can't I can't take you to a fancy dinner, you know. Right. right. But, you know, about the time one of my bands went bonkers, I was like, okay, how do you handle attention? Well, you handle attention. Granddaddy used to handle attention. Right. Yeah. Okay. How do you handle good fortune? Well, you do it. I mean, my example was that, which is uh, you never get rich in the music business being greedy. Mm-hmm. You just... Right. You must share yeah. because you didn't get here by yourself. And uh, you, you would know, Andy, uh, that from a promoter standpoint, I learned very early on, make sure everyone else makes money first. Mm. Yeah. Because you, if they're making money first, you will be back into the room. Mm-hmm. Right. Good point. Yeah. And as, if that continues over and over again, you will eventually get more money. Right. And I think there's a flip side to that. You can also be, um, to your earlier comment about not taking your own press and taking yourself too seriously and, and keeping out of your own way, we can all hearken back to when the pockets were deep, but we can also understand that there are people with dreams now, musicians with dreams with nowhere near that kind of resource. But that's not, you know, my, my cue is to say, that's great music. I like these people, you know, okay, they're not going to have the budgets that we've all kind of learned to... Uh, love and you know expect you know it doesn't matter to me if i if i can make someone happy and excited about having a project with a cover by me and maybe even a producer i mean i just worked recently with a band that um have day jobs but jerry Murata produced it and i did the cover and these guys are so happy you know it was just one of those situations where they just reached out dared to ask and why not you know just make everybody happy what goes you around, never know around. Cool, cool stuff happens man yeah I, I keep saying yes to some of the strangest things. And, <laughs> you know, like uh, I ended up in like a, a video game and now like in the game, in the game. So <laughs> it's actually a, a Canadian company called Big Blue Bubble, I think is the name of it. And they, uh, you know, about 15 years ago, there was the rise of the the game that you could go use the function inside your phone that allows you to in-app purchase you could buy like extra coins or you could buy extra levels and things like this right and a lot of kids would get in trouble because they their parents would give them their phone and say you know here just let this occupy you for the next hour and they come back and their kids like spent a thousand dollars like whoops 
you know and, and there's the stories are everywhere but uh this was uh, a game like that but it was it was uh based on music and i was literally just trying to follow my therapist's advice saying you know the next time your kid says something get really interested in it mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and one day my son was like playing some game like this and i was like hey what are you doing he's like oh it's this it's this game you use these little like little creatures and you have to crossbreed them and then they hatch new creatures that are different and they each sing a different part of a song that when you hatch them all together the song appears in Hmm. its entirety but sometimes you might just get the drummer monster sometimes you get the bass player monster sometimes you get the you know they have all these little different connecting counterpoint things i was like oh well you know of course let me play and we were deep in it and shirley was literally at the top of the charts in every single space and i'm obsessed with poking on the internet i'm an old computer coder so um when i saw his game i was like oh and i twitter was the new thing at the time and i pulled it up and i was i found out who the company was i was like oh dear big blue bubble you ever need like lyrics for your my singing monsters app you just reach out because i'm your man (laughs) happy and it was father's day i was like happy father's day and sure as shit they reached out and we're like yeah let's do something oh yeah nice and so i reverse engineered a song of mine at the time i was starting a solo career and i was like hey well let's why don't we do this because this is the song i just wrote (laughs) and we reverse engineered it and i i re-sang it in gibberish because they work in multiple countries Mm. They don't sing in English or a particular language. Well, I, I listened to an interview with Paul. I, I love hearing someone say, I, I sang in gibberish. Sometimes it's those phonetic mumblings that lead to the words. You know? It does. Yeah, right. Yeah. So if you ever get into my singing monsters uh, <laughs> or your kids or your grandkids or whatever, and they're poking around on it and you see this guy show up with the same hats that I wear, mm-hmm. they call him the sugar bush. Okay. Ah, there you go. Okay. And, uh, and and that's what it is and if you get deep enough we we decided to have fun with it at some point because it became somewhat popular he's one of the first animals you can get Hmm. but (laughs) because i'm a gamer i was like well we should put something in the back of it just in case you unlock the right thing so they were like oh we're just going to develop an entire island for you and it's going to have all these versions of you the version of you that plays bass and we'll put in all the different hats from your different bands and your different things and sure enough, man, you get far enough down the rabbit hole and there are like 15 versions of me in that thing. Wow. And it is the funniest thing. Off the, of one tweet, right? Off of one tweet. Mm-hmm. So I have a question we always ask guests. What was the first concert you went to where you paid to go and you, as a fan? Uh, first concert I paid to go to as a fan was the Police Synchronicity Tour. Ooh, good choice. Yeah. Where was that at? It was at uh, the Stokely Athletic Center in Knoxville, Tennessee, which doesn't exist anymore. I was going to say, I don't, I've never heard of it. And uh, if you are a fan of that band, and I am a somewhat uber fan of that band because of the reality of my age there, that was the night after the Atlanta concert, which is the one most people have an audio recording of. I think it was released. Hmm. Mm. yeah i have a dvd from that tour actually i think that's a that's yeah a and i i remember seeing that tour the fix were opening up for him and i remember cool. wondering if the bass player was real if it was a robot because he never moved mm. so in cool. the fix i was like the fix i remember that. Yeah. Uh, 
And he was just a dude that didn't want to move. He was just too cool for school. And uh, I was mesmerized by the police. I, I enjoyed the music. I understood kind of what I was listening to because I, I was fascinated with the records. But man, I, that was something else to see them play it because yeah, sure. their time would move everywhere and they were, they were reacting to the performance of the crowd in a way that I, I would not need to know all the music to be taught. They were teaching me the song while they were playing it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I absorbed that into my bones in a weird way that almost all of my successful songs and my bands are the most successful because you can learn it the first time through. Mm-hmm. By the time I get the second course, you should be able to sing it with me. If yeah. you can't, mm-hmm. it'll be less successful than my others. And I might have learned it from that. Sure. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate oh, it. Thanks. I appreciate yeah, it, y'all. Thanks great for job, uh, thanks for listening to the Troubadour album and Fabulous all the other things that will eventually happen. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. All the best to you, man. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, y'all. See you. Great day, Bye. man. At Discount Tire, we know your time is valuable. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online. Did you know Discount Tire now sells wiper blades? Check out our current deals at DiscountTire.com or stop in and talk to an associate today. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.